this building is going to be ashes in a matter of minutes. 30 years ago this week, a fire broke out at a compound occupied by an apocalyptic cult outside Waco. The blaze ended a weeks-long standoff between federal authorities and the Branch Davidians. This fire is intense. It has completely engulfed the building. Every part of the building is now in flames. Every window has flames shooting out of it. One surprise character in the saga? News Radio 1080 KRLD, the station where I work and where we produce this podcast. One of our morning anchors now, Mike Rogers, reported on the standoff. He was actually in Central Texas on April 19, 1993. He says after negotiations between federal authorities and the cult's leader, David Koresh, stalled, it was apparent the situation wouldn't end well or quickly. They all decided to wait it out, and they locked the doors, and the standoff began. 51 days. But why did it come to this? How did KRLD become a character in the story? And what draws people to cults in the first place? I'm Bailey Friday, and Texas wants to know, what have we learned 30 years after Waco? When you think of the city of Waco today, I mean, what comes to mind? Probably Chip and Joanna Gaines, Magnolia Market, maybe Baylor football, women's basketball. But for years before those came to prominence, many Americans first thought about Waco, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Let's get the latest now from the scene in KRLD's Mike Rogers. I was told by DPS troopers that uh, they had received... It started on February 28th of 1993, and at that time, I hadn't even been there a year. I was a newbie. I was a brand new street reporter. And I actually was, they had sent me on that, it was a Sunday, and they sent me to cover a Ross Perot rally at Richardson High School, which I think back now, you know, and Perot ran for president in 92. So why he was having a rally in 93, I don't know, but he was, and I was there and I was covering it. And I got a call in the middle of it from my boss said, we got a situation down in Waco. You need to drop what you're doing and get in the car and drive to Waco. Authorities attempting to execute a federal search warrant this morning at a compound of heavily armed religious cult became involved in a gunfight. I hopped in the car and got down there and we already had a couple of reporters on scene, but this was a big enough story that it required it required a lot of manpower. And so I, I got down there and little did I know what was to come. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives tried to execute federal warrants at the Branch Davidian compound just northeast of Waco. The ATF said it had information that the group was converting weapons into machine guns and had bombs and grenades. They were loaded up with guns and ammunition because they thought that the end of the world was coming and and everyone was coming to get them. Everyone was going to come and try and take away their guns and take away their, their life there at, in, in the compound. But the Branch Davidians were tipped off to the raid by a member who was a mail carrier in the area. He got wind of it when a local TV reporter following a tip asked him for directions to Mount Carmel. So the Branch Davidians were waiting when agents tried to serve the warrant. ATF Director Stephen E. Higgins announced that today... Four special agents at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms were killed, and 14 were wounded. They were doomsdayers, I guess we'd call them now, right? They were preparing for the end of the world. 
They were preparing for a big government takeover. And, you know, you, you can't do something like that and have as many people live there as did and not have word leak out eventually. According to the ATF, after the shooting stopped, Koresh released 24 members, mostly children. Then the weeks-long standoff ensued. We were right at the center of it because, uh, as it turns out, David Koresh was a big fan. Did that kind of surprise you? How did you feel when you heard that? It became clear just within the first few days that Koresh was, he was a big listener. He was a big fan. And we were going to play a central role in this. I guess I didn't really, I thought it was interesting. I, it wasn't, I mean, I had a job to do and it really, to me, it didn't matter whether he listened to the station or not. I, I just was, I was down there to cover the story as, as best I could, which wound up being quite a challenge over the next seven plus weeks. One of the things that happens to someone's mind is that you learn not to have your own. You are not supposed to trust your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own emotions about anything. And to give that all over to the leader who will tell you how to feel, who will tell you what to think. I am Rachel Bernstein, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a cult specialist. You become an empty vessel to be filled up by the leader and the teachings so that you're just walking around, kind of walking and talking like the, a puppet, and the leader is the puppet master. The puppet master was, of course, Koresh, who changed his name from Vernon Howell. I think it's kind of perfect that David Koresh changed his first name to David so that he could be the leader of the branch Davidians. And then it would seem like he was somehow supposed to, or he was anointed to be that person. The branch Davidians are an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and started in the 1930s, according to Vox. One of the group's leaders bought the land outside Waco in 1955 and established the compound that came to be called Mount Carmel. You just can't believe how out in the middle of nowhere this was. People, they think of Waco, they think that this happened in Waco. It didn't. This was 10, 15 miles out of town and just this rolling prairie. There was nothing out there except, you know, the compound. Early on, within the first day or two, he promised there were a lot of women and children in there, in the compound. And you had the initial shootout, and then they kind of locked themselves in there. There's 80-something of them, close to 100. A lot of women, a lot of children. And so the, the feds, they got on the phone with him. My information is there are 30 children currently in the compound. 13 of the children are the children of Vernon Howell or David. They were negotiating with him and they said, what can we do to get you to at least let some of the kids out? You're little kids, you know. And he agreed to start releasing kids, you know, some of the children, if his message was played on the air, if the media would get his message out as to what they believed and what they wanted and what they were all about, then he would start releasing kids. And... He did. Initially, a few of the kids got out. A few people got out. At the time, KRLD's news director was Rick Erickson. I was driving to Waco to bring some equipment to the reporters on the scene and received a phone call from the commander of the ATF operation in Waco. He said that David Koresh, the leader of the group inside the compound, was a longtime KRLD listener. 
and he wanted a statement, a joint statement read on the air, saying that the ATF would not try to raid the compound again and that both sides were trying to negotiate a peaceful surrender. I hesitated. I told him that it, it wasn't something that we would normally do journalistically. He paused and said, it would help save lives if you did this. I made the decision to read the statement on the air. I will read this statement that was given to us verbatim. ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, will not initiate any aggressive action. Negotiations are going on, and both parties are seeking a peaceful resolution to the situation. That is the end of the statement that was given to us by the official in charge of the BATF operation here in Waco. That was the first, but far from the last time, that KRLD would become a character in this story. An ATF agent would later read a statement from Koresh on the air. After that, listeners heard his voice firsthand. On one hand, I thought that putting him on the air would allow listeners to form their own impression of him. But on the other, I was more than a little concerned about turning 50,000 watts over to this madman. I decided that our listeners should have the opportunity to judge for themselves. Erratic type of thing. All right. um, Pastor, we need to break in right away here. There's been a dramatic development here, and Charlie Serafin is here with that. Charlie? Uh, could you put David up? David, are yeah. you still with us? I'm still with you. Thank you. Um, this is David Koresh, and we are now live on the air here on KRLD. And we're also on the Texas State Network, and we're uh, broadcasting throughout the state of Texas. David? Okay. Now, what we're dealing with here is a part of the New Testament manuscript. We're dealing with John's writing, the last living apostle, who a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, received the last count sign, the rainbow above God's throne. Let me explain. My David, father... David, we know and we can hear in your voice, and you and I have talked about it off the air for a while, that you're hurting. I've been shot. You've been shot, and you are bleeding. I'm bleeding bad. David? It's too late now. Are there other wounded people in the compound with you? There was two wounded... One dead, and the uh, two wounded are up and around again. One received a flesh wound to the leg and one to the hand, I mean to the wrist. Are you the most seriously wounded of the people? So far. Who, who died? Two-year-old baby, my girl. I have a lot of children. I have a lot of wives. What was her name? I'm not going to disclose that at the present time. Koresh's next ask came on March 2, 1993. He requested KRLD play a recording he made over the air. It was nearly an hour long. Given that we'd already played a role in the release of about a dozen children, and given that the request was coming from the FBI, we decided that the sanctity of human life outweighed the negative impression which would be created by our cooperation with the FBI and our apparent acquiescence to the demands of Koresh. So on Tuesday afternoon, we played the tape, all 58 minutes. The tape you're about to hear was given to KRLD News 42 minutes ago by two FBI agents who came from the command post at the TSTI, the old Connolly Air Force Base just northeast of Waco. I, David Koresh, agree upon the broadcasting of this tape to come out peacefully with all the people immediately. We played it, and I mean, obviously, he didn't come out. And at that point, because he said that he had heard God had spoken to him and told him that instead of coming out, he needed to wait it out. And at that point, they all decided to wait it out, and they locked the doors, and the standoff began. 
we established that the Branch Davidians came to Waco in the 1950s, but Koresh didn't join the group until 1981. So talking about David Koresh, what drew people to him? Well, so on the outside, you would say him? I mean, that happens a lot when you know, yeah. when you see a lot of cult leaders are like, really? But he was very charismatic in his way and by many considered to be attractive and absolute. People are looking for people at times and they find it very sexy to be with someone who says, I have the answer and I will keep you safe. And God speaks through me and I'm going to prove that to you. He had a way of also pitting people against each other, making the women want to be with him like it was a real coup to be with him, making them jealous of each other and have to combat each other to be in his favor. He also had a way of really putting down a lot of the men and making them seem less than so that the women would want to be with him instead of with their husbands. One of the key traits of the Branch Davidians was that members believed the apocalypse was near. That's always going to have the potential to be problematic because if a leader takes it to the next degree and has that kind of paranoid thinking about the world, there is going to be this apocalyptic moment, either they're caused by them or one that they trigger others to cause, you know, for them or around them. And that is exactly what happened. Walk me through the day of the fire. The fire broke out at a little afternoon. And so all the TV stations were doing their noon hits. All the reporters had lined up along the fence. And uh, the radio reporters to be on their phones. And, you know, noon was a big time down there. And everybody finished up their live shots. And just kind of started drifting away and went back to our cars and whatnot. And I was standing up at the fence. There's a group of us talking. And I looked on the horizon and I looked a little closer. And then I said, does that look like smoke? And everybody turned and looked. And within a few seconds, it was like roaches scattering when you come in and turn on the light at the middle of the night. Just everyone just taking off to their cars because it was obvious at that point. That is smoke. That is a fire. And this thing was about to come to a horrifying end. And everybody realized that at that point. Now we have the KRLD's Mike Rogers joining us again. Mike, what's happened? Thick black smoke coming out of the compound, Phil. We just noticed it within uh, the last 30 seconds. Looks like there is a fire of some sort uh, burning in or around the Branch Davidian compound. They don't know how it was started or who started it, obviously, but there does appear to be a fire burning inside the compound right now. The uh, the black smoke pouring out of it is uh, is plainly evident uh, to us, and we're two miles away. It's this, shooting flames out of the building now. It's absolutely now. shooting them out of the building. Two windows. I can see flames coming out of a couple of windows right now. Thick black smoke and... Uh, Again, the question, who started this fire and why, we'll probably have to wait for an answer to that. But uh, So it was a little afternoon, and, um, you know, for a building that size, Bailey, it didn't take long for it to burn down. That was It was terrifying how fast it burned and how intense that fire was. Well, 
you wonder, and again, I come back to this, we don't see anyone coming out of the building. You wonder if they want to be rescued. You wonder if this, this isn't their mass suicide. And now a huge ball of orange flame shoots up out of the middle of the compound. The entire building is just a, a massive orange ball with black smoke rising out of it. Uh, the fire is so thick, so intense, along with the smoke, you can't even see the outline of the buildings anymore except for that big tower in the middle. We see the roof collapsing now in the center of the building. The it's collapsing and it's the, all going to go up. The tower is, uh, looks to be collapsing right now. The tower in the center of the Branch Davidian compound is gone. We said this, uh, we said this just moments ago. This is one of the fastest moving fires. This had to have come from within, Phil, Suzanne. I, I don't see any other way that a, a fire... Well, the Bradleys are that. moving in to, to try to do something. Um, amazingly untouched in this intense blaze is the Branch Davidian flag itself, which is still flying over that compound. Mike, hold on. I think everyone had different thoughts about how it was going to end. Personally, I felt the longer it went, and we're up over seven weeks now, right, that these people are not coming out that it, it is, it's going to end ugly and someone is going to have to force the issue. Someone's going to have to go in and get them or they are going to have to do something on their own. After a certain period of time, I felt that it was going to be a really bad ending. Less than 40 years after Mount Carmel was established, 76 Branch Davidians were killed in the blaze. What drives people to a cult is often different from what it ends up being. Because no one goes out to actually join a cult. They have no idea that that's what it is. I think if a cult gave out a brochure ahead of time saying, hey, this is what we're going to do to your brain, people would not necessarily, some people might, but most people would not get involved. People are looking for community. They're looking for a belief system. They're looking for safety. They are looking to not have anxiety in this world and to know what direction to go in and having someone hand them a formula to follow for living the life they're supposed to be living or living the life that God wants them to live or whatever the philosophy or theology of the group is. And you mentioned briefly just what it does to people's brains. You said if people knew what it did to their brains, they wouldn't do it. What does it do? So it is a form of hypnosis that a lot of people will say that very slowly they got this sense that they lost themselves in it. And in fact, I have worked with people who have come out of cultic groups or sometimes who have been sent to me by their family and friends. They're thinking about leaving or they're recently out. And I feel like they're not there while I'm talking to them. Like they're still repeating the mantras of the group. They're still in the certain kind of thinking. And after a while, I will see the light suddenly go back on. And I have actually said to people after talking to them or meeting with them for, for sometimes weeks, sometimes months, welcome. Nice to meet you. And you know, some things that we do in our daily lives kind of have cult-like characteristics, like going to certain gyms, lifestyle trends, political parties. What's the point at which something crosses over into cult territory? It all depends who's running it and what they have in store for you. And if they need for you to do everything they say and to give over all that you have, whether it is your life, your money, your devotion, they will find a way to get you to do that. 
But if they start dictating who you can talk to in your life, who you can have a relationship with, if they start dictating how much you're allowed to eat, and usually it's going to be too little, how much you're allowed to sleep, also usually too little. This is all to put you in a more vulnerable state. And they will start telling you what your value is, what your worth is, what your purpose in life is. And all you did was sign up for an exercise class. I don't know why, but when you talk about colds, it always, it seems like it's something that happened. It happened in the past, but clearly it's still an issue. Is it a bigger issue than people realize? Oh, it's huge. I mean, I am blown away, but I think there will always be cults because born into this world will always be people like us who are open, who are wanting to learn, who are wanting to grow, who are a bit trusting because we have no reason not to be in a lot of situations and we're going to be vulnerable. And then there are people also simultaneously born into the world who feel totally entitled to take over someone else's life. And when it comes to what you do to help people who were in cults recover, what steps can you even take to kind of undo that hard wiring? It takes a lot of doing. And I want to tell people who might be listening, who are in the situation to give yourself some patience that the wiring and the hard wiring can be undone to a great degree at the beginning by kind of deprogramming, kind of looking at the programming, trying to undo it. This is what you were told about yourself, but this is why you were told this, that you can't trust yourself, let's say. Why were you gaslit to think that you needed to be dependent on someone else? It wasn't because you needed that, but because their ego needed for you to believe that. So you tried to try to understand why you were taught certain things about yourself, why you were taught to fear the world, and that was to make sure to keep you as a member. So that's kind of a milestone story in your career. Have there been any other stories that have kind of affected you the same way that one has? You no, know, it's funny you should ask that because when that story was finally over, and we put it to bed and I was driving back to Dallas for the last time from Waco. And I sat there in the car and I thought, wow, I'm 33 years old. My career is just beginning. And that is probably the biggest story I am ever going to cover. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> I'm never, <laughs> I'm never going to cover a story that big. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it did. It, it's funny you should say that because it did strike me that way. The compound is burned to the ground. All that's left is the frame of the tower. It stands in the middle of it now, charred black in the midst of the smoke and the, and the dying flames. I'm Bailey Friday at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thank you so much for joining me on our podcast, Texas Wants to Know. If you liked the show, please give us a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Scott Carpenter, who produced KRLD's special about Waco, from which we used interviews and archival audio. This episode was produced by Chris Blake and Savannah Jones. Original music by Michael Eisenstein. Editorial support from Cooper Mall. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan.